This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 638. And the quote of the day is, few things are more valuable than a strong work ethic. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 638, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for checking it out. And, man, you would think that uh, after 637 episodes, we would have this down to a science, but we make mistakes. Actually, we don't make I made a mistake. So with this episode uh, with Billy Ashball, I used the wrong microphone. So I had the wrong input set. So it used my computer microphone and not my normal microphone. So if it sounds a little weird... That's why. It sounds great, but it sounds a little different than it normally does. So now that that's out of the way, let's talk about uh, this conversation with Billy. Billy is someone who amazes me the amount of work that he puts in to his craft. And he, we talk a lot, a lot about it on here about preparation and making sure that you have all your bases covered. So that way, when you go into the gig, you know, the material, you're not going to get thrown off by particular things that are happening. And he also shares about how he records himself and goes back and analyzes the stuff that he's doing and how he fixes those things. And just a ton of great information from someone who's done it all from NSYNC to Pat Benatar. I mean, he's done it all. He's played at massive stadiums and small clubs and sort of everything in between. So tons of information. This is another episode where you might want to grab a notebook to take some notes. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it with Billy Ashball. All right, Billy, what's happening, my man? Hey, how are you, Nick? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Very good, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for, uh, there's, like you said, we, we went through some scheduling, uh, <laughs> some scheduling things. Yeah. So I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate man. you working with me on that. Oh, and, and, uh, absolutely. so, yes. so I'm glad that I'm glad that you're here. Yeah. Um, too. you know, I wanted to start, I, I mentioned off air that you and I started playing drums at the same age and, I didn't realize it at the time until I really until I started this podcast that that starting at 15 is late, <laughs> quote unquote, yes. late. Um, and I felt like I, I didn't realize it, uh, like I said, until I started this podcast. But there was a lot of times where I felt like I would see other people playing and I was like, how are they so how are we the same age? And they're so good. And, you know, they started far, far before me. Did you yeah. feel like. Did you feel like you were really behind the eight ball when you started playing? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) And, um, and I actually, I'll being just brutally honest, I felt, I wouldn't say behind the eight ball, but when I got into, uh, in sync and from that point forward for, for many years, um, a lot of big gigs kind of get dumped on your lap. You know what I mean? Right. Um, from you know live tv and then live concert things and and uh there was a a drum battle thing i did with justin but my point being that when all that started it wasn't like more so i am now where i'm more comfortable and and Mm -hmm. can just handle when things like that come my way no i was crazy woodshedding and sort of the analogy back then is that i was just busting my butt just woodshedding to like barely cut the gig in my mind 
was right. kind of my my mindset. Um, so yes, I, I I can relate to to all of that. And then you know you go on on YouTube or the internet and and you just see these phenomenal young players that yeah. are just playing way too seasoned for their age and. Uh, it's inspiring, but it can also be a little uh, depressing sometimes. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, it's definitely depressing. And I, I always say that anytime I get on YouTube, I either want to do one of two things: I either want to throw my drums away, or I want to spend the rest of my life in the shed. One or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but you know what? I've, you know, I've come to the point where you know you have to accept yourself you know, the way you play. And, and I stopped comparing myself to other drummers and just started focusing more on being the best drummer that I could be, not to sound corny, but I see somebody right. do some amazing stuff. I said, well, that's, that's not my thing. That's not my approach. Or, you know, let me fine tune what I have and try not to worry so much about what everybody else is doing. Yeah. I, th you know, and I think we have a lot of that happening where, Years ago, I felt like we found the people who we really enjoyed their style or we really enjoyed their approach to playing. And we tried to emulate them in, in some way and, and really learn from them and, and absorb that. And now, to me, it almost feels like, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but I think that it's, it's having a negative effect where it feels like we are seeing someone else and, and we sort of turn into like this 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 like me too thing where we're like, Oh, I want to do that too. So they know how to do that thing. So let me learn how to do that. And not even necessarily because we're interested in it, but more so be just because we can see these other people playing these things. And we feel like we should have to be able to play those things as well. Uh, that's a, that's a slippery slope right there, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my gosh, you, you would never come out of the practice room. <laughs> right. Yeah. I agree. Ever, ever, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, you just got to, I don't know, in my opinion, just put your stamp on things and just embrace your style and mm -hmm. look inside what you're doing and just try to, you know, I don't know, I get in my world and I just kind of focus in there. And, you know, I peek my head out and get inspired, you know, from time to sure. time. But, uh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've seen, <laughs> and the reason why, the reason why I say that is I've seen people practicing things or working on things and I'll have a conversation with them. I'm like, are you do you use that do you use that in a in a gig or do you play that style of music or or whatever and they're like no i just saw it on youtube and i'm i just wanted to learn it and i'm sort of like yeah it seems like a big waste of time to me if you're like if you're not really yeah, interested in it you, know? you don't you're not going to use it what's the point of spending hours in the shed trying to it, learn it yeah i, I it doesn't seem like the wisest way to approach your your instrument, in my opinion. Um, right. I did that a little when I was younger, you know, but but then as soon as I got into bands and started playing, that just, for me, it just naturally, that became um, my workload and that became my priority. Right. And that's what I worked on. It could be a shuffle groove. You know, I didn't care about some crazy double bass or some Latin crazy thing. I, I you know, I got to get this shuffle down for the gig. And, uh, you know, so I luckily I just sort of thought that way. Uh, but I agree. I, I think you got to pick your battles, you know, the older you get, yeah. the better you get at that. And, you know, by that, I mean, I see cool stuff all day long and I understand what's going on and I see what they're doing. And I, I know what it would take to achieve that. But it's, it's just not on my plate. It's, it's like you right. said, you know, oh, wonderful. I could put X amount of time mastering this, but then I'm not going to take it to a gig. I'm just going to, you know, play it for myself and have fun in my world, which is cool. But I'm I'm too busy trying to focus on the gigs and, and 
you know, get that part of things lined up. Sure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you, you had mentioned starting when you were 15 and spending all this time in, in the woodshed. How did you, one, how did you determine what it was you were going to practice? Because I think there's so much information out there and so many things to learn. Was there, you know, was there a way that you sort of whittled down to, to the things that you necessarily need to work on? And the other question is, did you feel like you fast tracked uh, some of your some of your practicing to try to catch up to everyone else? Yeah. Um, well, well, like, are you referring to like when I was younger and practicing and trying yeah. to? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, when I was younger, there wasn't all of the uh, information and slash distractions that you have online now, where everything's coming right. at you a million miles an hour. There's a gazillion yeah. things to do. Uh, you know, I had to find an instructor, and so my my right. path was was limited. You know, in that sense, which mm -hmm. I think. Well, probably very good. You know, it keeps you focused yeah. when you're younger. So you're not, you know, staring at another shiny thing and going off and doing something right. else. Yeah. yeah it's so like here's, here's I think the lessons books. were crucial. <laughs> here's two books. And don't yeah. Just, yeah. 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 That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was great because, you know, I studied, you know, with uh, an instructor in the Miami area for several years. And I'll never forget my first lesson. And I had already been playing. Um, professionally for several years. I was probably in my early 20s and started playing professionally mm -hmm. when I was 18. So, you know, several years of, of bad habits and no reading and no rudiments and none of that. Um, and so when I left the first lesson, I, I felt horrible. I was embarrassed and really depressed. I had six books in my hand and I just felt like I couldn't play my way out of a wet paper bag. Um, <laughs> but that was the beginning of it. And the weird yeah. thing for me is I had all these old habits I wanted to break. But at the same time, I was literally in a house band playing five nights a week. So it was really yeah. strange because I would spend hours during the day practicing this stuff that, you know, the grip, the rudiments, swing, all the Latin, all these things that were foreign to me because I was completely self-taught to that point. And then I'd have to switch gears. And, and I, to some degree, I had to play like I play to keep my gig. I couldn't sound all of a sudden at my gig like I'm trying new stuff. You know what I mean? So right, it was this right. weird almost gave up at one point. I was like, this is crazy. I said, I, you know, I'm completely spending all this time during the day. And then when I go to the gig, I just flip out of that and go back to the my old ways. But eventually it started to slowly transition into the gig. And I was like, okay, okay, I, I got this. And then that just started the ball rolling. And that motivated me to practice more. But in the beginning, it was interesting um, getting over that hump of yeah. literally playing my bad habits to make a living while I'm trying to improve my skill, I guess. That's one way to look at it. The danger of getting some sort of uh, technique help or something like that, and then you go to the gig and you have to forget all that stuff. You can't sit, like you said, you of can't course. be sitting on the gig. Exactly. You can't be sitting on the gig and being yes. like, oh, is my, okay, is my grip right? Am I doing this? Oh, am I pivoting exactly. in the right spot? And it's like, yeah, it's it was and it was hard for me too. I couldn't get out of when I when I first started. Uh, right, I, I was uh, working with a guy, and it was all technique based. And I'd be on the gig, and I was like totally in my head, you know, like making sure that I was doing all the right stuff. And I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta get out of this. And I talked yeah. to him about it, and he, he's like, practice the stuff here or in this in the shed, and then go on the gig and don't think about it. Because yeah, it'll work its yeah. way into your playing. That's exactly what happens, yes. But me yeah. being young and naive, I wanted it to show up that day, you know? Um, but it, <laughs> I still want it to show up that day. <laughs> well, yes. Patience, patience, <laughs> I guess, you know. Um, 
it would be months later, but you know, it's, you know, when you have it, you have it, it's yours. So it's worth the, the effort and the journey to yeah. me. So you had mentioned this idea of, of really being yourself and, and not being distracted by all these things that, that we're seeing on YouTube or, or things that we're not going to use for our gigs or, or that really don't pertain to us. But how do you, how do you suggest that people start going down the road of really discovering themselves as a player and, and who they are and, and what they want to learn and how they want to learn? I know that's a loaded question. Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, I, I don't know that I can give any real advice, but I can certainly share kind of what happened in my world. And, and, you know, for, for years I would see other people play stuff and be very envious. And, and like we said earlier, I, I felt the uncontrollable urge to sit down and learn that even though it might not lead me to anything that I'm going to play at the gig or really help my style. It was just this weird competitive, well, Hey, if they do it, I, I got to do it thing. But for me, over the years, what's happened is as I've, cause I was telling you how I was always growing into the gig, you know, like in the NSYNC days and stuff. Well, mm-hmm. as I continued to progress and, and get better and my own voicing, I just became, I guess, more confident, obviously with myself and in my own skin. So now it's, I look at someone and I'm like, well, that's really great. And then, okay, let me get back to work, you know, and I got to mm-hmm. do what I got to do. And it, for me, it took a certain amount of level. Of, of, of skill that I had to really practice and earn. And so when you put that time in and you feel really confident, uh, c- comfortable and confident with your playing, at least for me at that point, it was much easier to not get distracted and want to get pulled into, you know, everything I see on the internet, you know, mm-hmm. which can be, uh, like I said, a, a seriously slippery slope. And then you're wasting your time. Like you said, at the end of the day, you can kind of cop all these little things from everybody else, but you have no real voicing yourself. You're just all these little jagged parts of other people, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely don't like that personally. Um, it's, and it's hard. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of times where I'm watching YouTube or I'm watching, you know, someone on Instagram or something. And I'm like, man, I really need to learn this thing. And I know that I'm never going to play it. I'm never going to play it on a gig. I'm True. never going to use it for anything else than sitting in, in the practice room playing it. And, yeah. and, you know, even for as long as I've been playing, it's still hard to keep those blinders on to be like, no, 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 this is the thing. You know, like you hear everyone talk about, oh, they love, you know, they'll love this person's groove or that person's groove. But then they go in the practice room and they practice something like they practice double bass, right. you know, triplets right. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's a good point. Um, I I did some silly, you know, practicing when I was younger, but I quickly learned, you know, uh, I, I was probably doing double bass, you know, during the day for six hours. And then I would go to the gig and, and it would be a blues gig and I would sort of <laughs> hack the shuffles and get these weird looks from the players. And I went home. I was like, hmm, what's wrong with this picture? Right. <laughs> I can right. nail some double bass, but if I'm, you know, the gig that's paying the money, I'm getting these weird looks. So I quickly yeah. realized, you know, and I will say that if, if I didn't have any gigs or had no projects, then I'm more open to kind of, hey, I like that. Let me mess with that and just sort of get it under my skin and get it, you know, in my bag of tricks. Right. But lately I've been so busy with projects that literally that's really been sort of the direction of how I practice and what I practice. Mm-hmm. So that, that alone helps keep me focused on that. That makes sense. And to yeah. be clear, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with practicing no, double bass. Of course. And if that's the thing that you want to do, then you should spend sure. all of your time doing that for sure. That's not, 
I, I think the point that I was making and that we're both making is, and I don't want, just because I don't want people to misunderstand what we're saying, that the point is practice the stuff that you need for the work that you want to do. Of course. And you're right. It's easy to miss that and kind of get distracted. And, and, you know, next thing you know, you've floated down the wrong road and you're like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, but yeah, you know, like anything over time you learn and you get better and smarter. I mean, you're supposed to, <laughs> that's, that's, to, the, yeah. that's the goal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the, always the goal of this podcast is to try to try to help people avoid the mistakes that I made and, and all of my guests have made, sure. you know, because yeah, we've yeah. all made them. So of course, yeah, uh, yeah. I still make them, but uh, you know, we're human. So, um, <laughs> so I, it's interesting how you, you start at 15 years old, you're playing professionally by the time you're 18. How does, how do you go from starting at 15, playing at 18, and then you end up in NSYNC? I know that there's a big gap there, but <laughs> yeah. But how does that how does that trajectory happen? And do well, you have any do you have any advice for for doing what you did to to share with other people that maybe that will help them land look, bigger the, and better? Yeah. Days? Well, the best advice for some reason, just the way I was wired. Well, it's not for some reason. It's it's my parents. Just the the way they instilled work ethic in me when I was young. It just carried in into you know my career. So I've always, always taped gigs whenever I could. Years mm -hmm. ago, I would take uh, just like a you know a little portable uh, boombox with a cassette tape, um, and then I eventually I graduated to like a little task cam uh, that took some line ins and I had some mics and stuff. But my point being is, from as long as I can remember, I always recorded myself and listened back. It could be the crappiest gig, but I was just always focused on wanting to sound the best that I could and not worried about other things. And that helped tremendously um, over the years. But, you know, basically I started playing professionally when I was 18 and just kept going in bands and bands and kept playing, which was great. But then things changed when I started, what I was talking about taking lessons uh, in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And that's when all the doors opened. And once I got over that hump, of playing full time while I'm trying to actually improve my skill during the day. That took a bit, but once I did that, everything started, like I said, started to snowball and I became focused. And, you know, and, and to answer your questions about the NSYNC thing, um, I think that's why, at the end of the day, that's really why I got the gig because I was that guy. Now, I, I got the call for NSYNC because I worked with a rap artist uh, named Turbo B with the group Snap. They did that song, I Got the Power, mm -hmm. a dance song back in the early 90s. And Johnny Wright was his manager. So my wife and I were out with Turbo for a good two or three years, a lot of overseas stuff. And then that sort of went away. But I had that connection with Johnny. Um, and he, and again, you know, I was the one who showed up and at, at rehearsals with this artist, you know, Turbo B, the rapper, and I'm the one with the charts that knows the arrangement. And, you know, the band's turn around looking at me. I'm like, no, four more bars before the second verse, you know, and this kind of thing. So uh, I clearly had my world together. And, right. and I think that's crucial. And I, I didn't, I wasn't planning on anything happening. Of course, you, of course you plan, but I didn't know anything was going to happen, I guess is sure. a better way to say it. So you just keep my head down, keep working hard. Uh, it's, like I said, it's just the work ethic that was drilled into me when I was young. And, and all that, people recognize that. 
if you show up on time, if you know your parts, if your gear is the best it can be and sounding good and you don't drink and you don't cause drama and you're that guy that everybody wants, eventually the right person's going to want you is my best advice. Mm-hmm. Um, take your playing serious uh, from the very beginning. Record yourself as much as you can and, and just keep chipping away and, and be that person that's reliable. That if you say you're going to do a gig and be on a gig at a certain time, be there and be prepared, you know, at all costs, because that's how the next gig, the next gig comes, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. For sure. And that's, uh, uh, you know, not that you asked, but that's how I got the Pat Benatar gig. Uh, unknowing, uh, well, Neil and Pat uh, came out to a gig because uh, they have two daughters that love sync and they were young. So they're, you know, we meet them in the back and we're like, you know, little kids in a candy store. Oh my gosh, Pat Minotaur, we're getting our autograph, taking pictures, we're all giddy. Nice. And so they're watching the show and after the show, the front of the house guy comes up to me and he says, man, he goes, Neil was checking you out. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I bust your drums off to a separate mix and gave him a set of headphones. And he, he was soloing you up the whole night and just listening wow. to you. I said, you're kidding me. I was like, holy crap, now I'm nervous. Uh, so uh, sure enough, two weeks later, he calls and he says, hey, we're making some changes. Would you be interested in, in coming out? And so my point being, again, you know, I didn't have to record and, and put all that effort in when I was playing local clubs, but I did. And I just continued all through my career and and that pays off and people pick up on that and they recognize that and as Hmm. simple as that is so many people overlook that and so many drummers that i talked to or that i you know worked with or taught they though they call it a profession to be honest they treat it almost like a hobby in my opinion and to me if, if you're really serious you need to take that next step and really like I said, be that guy. Be on time. Know your parts. Don't ever be late. And uh, all that stuff's huge because mm-hmm. there's a there's a million great players. But when you get out with an artist, there's all these other dynamics that come into play that, yeah. uh, in some way, are just as important as you're playing. And if if those aren't up to par, and I've seen it happen, you know, you you're on a flight home, <laughs> and yeah. somebody's out there taking your place. That's just the way it is. If you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know about my love for DW Drums. And I didn't think that that love could get even more intense until I saw this design series five-piece shell pack acrylic kit that they made exclusively for Sweetwater.com in a smoke glass finish. This kit is beautiful. It's a five-piece acrylic shell pack, has 10 and 12-inch toms, 16-inch floor tom, 22-inch bass drum, and a 14-inch snare. And again, it is exclusive at Sweetwater.com. It's a smoke glass finish, and it is beautiful. And if you're not dealing with Sweetwater yet, you're missing out. Sweetwater.com is my favorite site to buy gear because they have experienced sales engineers that can help you pick out the perfect product and perfect gear for your situation. They have fast free shipping. They have customer service that is second to none. And everything you buy on their site has a two-year warranty from Sweetwater.com. So check out this DW Design Series five-piece acrylic kit in smoke glass exclusively at Sweetwater.com. The Saturn Series drums have been a cornerstone Mapex series for more than 25 years. Now the Saturn Evolution Series combines the best of all things Saturn 
in one series, including the Halo mounting system, which unlocks the freedom of full resonance, the sustain adjustment knob that gives you full control of resonance, decay, and tone, birch walnut hybrid shells that perfectly combine the sonic characteristics of walnut with the articulate punch of birch, delivering a dark, punchy, dry sound, and the iconic maple walnut hybrid shells, which has been at the core of the series for many years, providing a fuller, rounder tone with bright, versatile, open sound. For more information about the Saturn Evolution series, visit mapexdrums.com. I think that that's a very interesting point that you make that most people treat it like a hobby and not as a, and not as a profession. And mm-hmm. I would imagine on both sides, on, on the preparation side, oh, yeah. um, you know, on the practice side, on the gear, making sure they have the right gear and all that kind of stuff. But then on the other side, when they're, when they're playing the gigs and like you said, showing up, you know, making sure you're showing up on time, you're not drunk when you show up, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's there's true. some, and there's, and there's, you know, you can be, you can be replaced in, in an instant. And there's thousands of other people who are out there who were, who were good enough who could take your job. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Never forget that. <laughs> that keeps me motivated, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> how was it, how was the transition from you? Like when you were playing with snap, what, what size venues were you playing versus in sync? I, I got to imagine you're playing, you know, 40, 50, 60,000. No, no. NSYNC. Well, at, at that time, Snap was all overseas. See, we didn't hardly do anything in the States. Um, a lot of Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they were larger clubs, you know, probably mm-hmm. two, 3,000 seaters, maybe some festivals, you know, bigger, bigger right. stuff. But, you know, definitely smaller scale than NSYNC was. For sure. I would say, what was the, how was the transition from that to playing with NSYNC, which I'm guessing was those 40, 50, 60,000 seat venues oh just just on stage you mean yeah because i yeah. for for me when i when i moved from from smaller venues to bigger stages to you know almost to arenas like that's a that's a big jump and i feel like you're playing my playing anyway i don't want to speak for you um but was your it felt like my playing had to change my my moves were more exaggerated uh i had to I played differently than I did than I would at a small club. Did you experience those same yes. things? Were there growing pains moving to bigger stages? Yeah. Yes, yes. Good. I get you now. Good, good question. Yes, um, I the the energy and the excitement harnessing that in is was a big challenge. And of course, with with my gig, you know, there was a click track mm-hmm. for for every song, so. You know, if, if there's 60,000 kids out there, you, you cannot get excited and rush a fill because you just, you know, you just cause this major friction out front, you know, rhythmically. Um, that is not good. <laughs> yeah. So that that is a huge uh, adjustment. But I think, to be honest, looking back, I think all of the elements that I've always kind of put into place as I'm growing and stuff really helped. Uh, still recorded myself. Every show, uh, even within sync, I did it with a mini disc recorder, mm-hmm. uh, whether the union knew it or not, <laughs> and and would always listen in the bus. So I was always always fixing and changing things um, as I progressed. But as the crowds got bigger and the rooms got bigger, and you know when you when you're playing in a uh, you know say like a stadium or, or even you know a, a larger 
you know, arena. When you hit the kick drum and you feel it in your chest, you feel it moving air out there. That's powerful. Yeah. You know, um, and that you, you tend to fall in love with that, that you really feel like you're driving the train. Um, but yeah, it, it was a gradual sort of, uh, transition, you know, cause NSYNC went from, you know, like house of blues and those kind of things. to like, then we did like amphitheaters and then it was stadium. So it was a gradual thing. Um, right. But yeah, I'd have to say honestly, because no one's ever asked that. I, I, I really think that it's it's just all of the preparation that I've done in general, whether it's just a small club or a big venue, it all it all served me great. And it kept me honest. Cause I gotta tell you, like half the time I'll record the show and I'll come off stage and I'll think, man, that really sounded horrible. I played that like crap. Or 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 likewise, I'd say, hey man, I really killed that Phil. And then I'd listen back, you know, objectively in the bus in my bunk, and I'd be like, holy crap! You know, half the time when I thought it was horrible, the reality it wasn't that bad. I was struggling mm-hmm. internally, but I'll be damn, it didn't sound that bad on tape. And then, <laughs> equally, sometimes I thought I played the greatest thing, and I listened back. It's like, oh geez, that was <laughs> that. Clearly, I was just playing for myself, and that did yeah. not fit, you know. But by doing that. You know, I sort of produced myself and got myself together on my own. You know, I didn't have the musical director or, or an artist coming over saying, hey, you know, that Phil you're doing is, you know, I heard that that Phil was messed up the first time I listened back. You know, right. If I had not listened back in my mind, hey, I'm killing it. And well, you know, <laughs> killing it might be the right word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah killing the gig, maybe. <laughs> you're damn right. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you 100 percent that you should record yourself. I mean, we used to record, I recorded my practice. We recorded our practice with a band. We recorded all of our gigs. Benny Greb talks a lot about practicing and and about listening back to it. But the thing that you said that I think is the most important thing is to listen to it objectively. Mm -hmm. You can't listen to it to, to, self-loathe and and right. I mean, you want to be critical of your playing but you don't want to use it as a way to beat yourself up you want to use it as a tool to get better yes no very, very good point yes indeed so uh, i hmm. i would hope that that everyone out there is is recording themselves uh so when you're when you're listening back to this what are you listening for are you are you listening for tempo are you listening for how your fills land are you listening for feel all of the above and yes. then and then once you're once you're listening to that stuff, how are you how are you digesting or downloading that info to yourself well, to make yourself you know, better? Right. Like anything, you get better at it the more you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what I would do is, you know, I'm a private person. I don't hang out and chat and party much after the show. I'm pretty much I'm known as the hermit. So I would go to my bunk and I'll just put the headphones on and I'd shut my eyes and I would just listen, try to listen as a listener. Um and not get wrapped up, like you said, in, in dr- my drumming world, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was a little hard at first, but the more I do it, the better I got. And then, and then it was like, aha, though that was a very cool fill, and I technically played it correct. And when you listen to the context of what's going on, it sounds like I was just trying to shove you know, a, a square into a round circle it just didn't, mm-hmm. it just wasn't working um and so the more i i did that the, the better i got at it uh, for it makes sure sense. yeah yeah but it's and interesting ha- yeah and so were you were were you making notes or anything or you were just evaluating oh, yeah. and that yeah oh yeah well mental notes and then sometimes i would actually take out a pencil and scratch stuff down if it was really really important <laughs> you know yeah. don't do that again with an explanation <laughs> point what were you thinking you know um and but I do the same thing, you know, today when I'm listening or like like I'm recording right now a lot of tracks 
um, for John, John Lodge, the Moody's uh, bass player, is doing a, a solo album, another one. And so we've got 13 tracks to record. So I'm about five in right now and I'm getting better already, just five in. But it's the same thing. I'll play something like, oh, OK. But then when I listen back, I, I have to switch hats and I have to really listen to the music and and. You know, and I'm getting really inside of everything, really minute now. Um, but it takes practice, and, mm -hmm. and the more the more you do it, and the more seasons you get, and the you know the more mature you get, the easier it is to to lay back and and not feel like you have to put all your cool stuff in there. You know, right. if, if you just concentrate on the groove, you'll have a spot. Your time will come up. But that's that's probably one of the hardest things because you think about it. We spend countless hours as musicians and, and drummers trying to learn chops and licks and stuff. And at the end of the day, depending on the gig, at least in my gig, there wasn't much of a call for that. So it's real easy human nature to want to, you know, Hey, I can do it. Let me put it somewhere kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which is not good. I learned that the hard way. So it, it takes discipline to listen and realize, okay, I'm just getting my rocks off and playing something that's just not needed. You know, right. and it's still a, don't get me wrong. It's still a learning experience. And like I'll I'll do a track and I'll spend a couple of days and I'll send it off to Alan and he'll listen one time and he'll go, ah, no, that Phil, you know, right there. Let's let's do something with that. That's not working. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, damn, yeah, I should have heard that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yep. it's, it's it's ongoing. No, you know, no doubt about it. Yeah. How do you feel when you're working with an artist, say, like in sync or Pat Benatar or or whatever other artists that you're working with and one is more restrictive than the other, do you feel mm -hmm. like, do you feel it harder to have artistic expression when you're playing something where it's sequenced and you're playing the tracks and you're playing to a click track and all of that? Do you feel, do you feel confined in, in those scenarios versus other scenarios where you have a lot more, a lot more room? Yes. But uh, to be honest, I, I, I only, I don't feel confined if there's some sort of a loop going on that I have to work within, you know, within that framework. Mm -hmm. But personally, where I feel like the handcuffs come on is, is if an artist will just tell you kind of in a nice way what to play and how to, how to play something. And that really becomes, you know, like a paycheck and you just kind of take a deep breath and, you know, it, it is your job. It is their music. And technically the artist, you know, is always right. However, when you get in those situations where the artist looks at you and says, hey, I hired you and we're doing this live and I want you to put your thing on it, that's a whole nother animal. And yeah. uh, those, those gigs are night and day as far as just enjoying. Because, I mean, again, we spent hours learning to, to speak and say things on our instrument. And if someone's going to put duct tape on your mouth when it's time to talk, you're like, you know, it's not a lot of fun, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, again, I'm not dissing anyone that I had to do that with. It's just from my personal point of view, it does take, you know, that part out of it because you, you have no freedom. You, you're playing the same exact thing night after night. They don't want anything different. They want what was on the record and, and that was it. So yeah, it is what it is. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same thing with, with local bands, top 40 bands. I'm sure you're going to have a band leader or someone in charge, you know, who's probably going to be breathing down your neck to play more like the record. And, you know, so mm -hmm. it, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, the thing that I think is uh, interesting to talk about as well is, I mean, you've played in so many different bands. You've, you've had to learn so many different songs and styles and set lists and 
and all of that. What's your approach to learning a book of songs or a catalog of songs, whether it be under, you're under the gun, you got to learn right. it in four days or, yeah. or you have some time to learn it. But I'm sure I, 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 just from the limited time we spent together, I feel like you have a system of how you do this. <laughs> I do. I actually, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm very fortunate to be a contributing writer for Modern Drummer Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I and I did my first article last March, and it was entitled Practice Like a Pro. And it was a lot about this subject. Um, and I went into as much detail as I could um, in the article. But yes, basically like, okay, so if we're talking like a top 40 band back in the day, and, and, and you're given like 30 songs, to learn in two weeks um, or if I'm joining a, you know, a, with an artist and I have to learn an hour's worth of, or an hour and a half worth of stuff, you know, in, in a week or two, the system is the same. I always play through all of the material, all of it. Don't, don't sleep on anything mm-hmm. and record it. Right. And then two things, pay attention to how it feels when you play it and then pay attention to how it sounds when you listen to it and those two things. So in other words, you can, sometimes you can play something and feel that it's off and sometimes you need to hear it. But my point being is play, play through it, pay attention to how it feels and listen back and listen objectively. Number one, find the trouble spots, all of them, and then play the trouble spots. And the ones that are the hardest should rise to the top. So the most difficult, the most struggle, the most out there thing that that just doesn't feel right should be at the very top of the list and then work its way down to the bottom of the list is all the stuff that you can play effortlessly. And then it's it's a very simple process. You work on the hardest stuff uh, first and as much as you can. Don't waste any time playing stuff that's comfortable. And I, and I learned this the hard way, you know, you don't need, if you've got it down, there's no need to waste your time because you're probably under the gun learning a bunch of material. Yeah. Um, so find the trouble spots and then effectively looping those spots is a huge, huge uh, weapon of mine that I use uh, all the time. Uh, you can loop anything from a, a, a short fill to an entire section, to a one bar groove, a two bar groove, anything. And in any sort of a doll system, like I have digital performer, it's very easy to locate these loops in the trick to looping is just enough comfort level before your trouble spot and just enough after. So, you know, if I've got a four bar phrase that I wanted to do some drum fills with band hits, I'll go like maybe one or two bars before and one or two bars after, and that's your loop. So I can set up the time, feel comfortable. I'm in the trouble spot. I'm out. I'm back in the trouble spot. So when you put in time, it's very, very efficient. Mm. And, and you're isolating that trouble. Muscle memory is so important. And it's a, it's a complete game changer. Uh, because yeah. when, when you're nervous and, and when things are taking you out of your game, your monitor's messed up, uh, you know, the, the rig's feeling weird that day, muscle memory is what's going to come out um, mm-hmm. on your worst night. So that's huge. Um, and, of course, you're recording yourself through the whole process. Right. Then when you practice this stuff, all the trouble spots, then walk away for a second, you know, or, or, you know, a day or an hour, whatever. And then when you come back, play through it and pay attention to that first time through. And if it's still a little wobbly, get back to practicing and just be honest with yourself, believe it or not. Yeah. It, it, it's lots of isolation and repetition um, for sure helps. Man, that's yeah. a great, I mean, that's a, that's a great system. Yeah, yeah, it really I kinda, is. You know, I, I stumbled into that, and then of course, learning to write music 
is a wonderful advantage because you can chart out little things, little figures, whatever they are. Um, helps as well tremendously yeah. for learning the material. Uh, that's actually that's a big game changer. I can't I can't downplay that. You know, like for instance, you got to learn twenty songs, and I did this back in the day. I walked around with one of those Walkman, you know, because yeah. uh, with headphones on all day long, and then trying to remember, oh crap, you know, this is a five bar verse, and then and then this, and then oh my gosh, and it was so hard, and it was just such a long, tedious process. But once I learned how to effectively write out little charts, you know, roadmaps, nothing crazy, intricate, no first and second endings or nothing like that. Just a, just a little chart with kick and snare patterns or phrases. I want to play with the band, anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, that was, was a complete game changer because then I could chart out a song and literally walk away. I don't have to spend six hours listening to it. I can read yeah. it and, and get through the gig. Now yeah. there is a downside and I'm guilty of this. You carry those damn charts around way too long yeah. and you end up looking at them way too. And it's happened all the time, twice. When I was in, once when I was in sync, uh, we were starting a tour and, you know, you take that stuff. Um, the tech did it in sync and the dude did it in uh, the Moody's. Uh, about a week into it, I, I get to the sound check and the charts are gone. <laughs> I'm like, hey, the guy, you don't need that. You're not even looking at them. And they're right. I'm like, okay, you're right. Yeah. But I put that them on Broadway off book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I put that old busted up chart up there just, just as a safety net. And it was kind of funny that the techs are like, dude, you don't need this. And they just took them away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they were right. They served their purpose. So it, it, it can be a crutch in that sense, mm -hmm. um, for sure. But it's not the end of the world. Get you through the game. That's the way I look at it. Did you sort of develop your own shorthand system or, or um, are you... Or yeah. you just, yeah. you know, you know who was a huge influence back in the day was Greg Bissonette had a yeah. VHS. I think it was his second VHS at the time. And he did that whole thing where he, he, he took a song and he called it, I think a roadmap or something like that. And he would just put like eight bars and then write a kick pattern. And he just had this way of, of simplifying it. And that's exactly what I did. I just had my way of writing it out. So you know, quite often I'm probably the only one who can understand it, but that's okay. It's, it's just meant for me. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm not was writing it the, for people. Was it the the playing, reading, and soloing with a band? Is that what the? Yes, yes, very yeah. good. You that was correct. not just just so we're clear. That wasn't my memory. I just googled it while we were talking. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that would have been pretty impressive, though. Right? I know. I, yeah, she could have run with that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just looking up because I because I wonder That's if it, I, yeah. I wonder if it's still available like in in digital form because Greg, I mean Greg Bissonette has timeless knowledge, so I'm sure that. Oh uh, my gosh! Yes. You know, you could put this VHS on and. Uh, oh yeah! Quick, real quick, Greg stories. Um, so I we're, love in, stories. we're in California and within sync, sorry. And, um, he reached out to me and wanted to come to a show. I was like, Oh my gosh, I was floored. So we get to sound check and, and this stage, uh, this was, uh, bigger arenas. I, I remember is that the stage I was up on a riser about four foot. And then to my right, you know, four foot drop, there's a little piece of staging there. Then it dropped down to where the crew was. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing a, you know, sound check and I'm playing and I glance over and it's Greg Bissonette sitting there with his legs crossed, just looking up at me, smiling. And I just <laughs> freaked out. I froze and I was like, oh my gosh, but what a sweetheart that guy is. So an amazingly nice, just a great, amazing player. It's just wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, he is. With him. Yeah. Yeah. He is a, uh, I, there's, I've never heard anyone ever say a bad word about Greg. 
No. Ever. No. No, nope, I mean, you are correct. Yeah, he's yeah. he's the best. He's awesome. Um I I just lost my train of thought because I was googling uh I was googling Greg. And you, <laughs> the image the image on this on the uh on the Amazon is is pretty it's definitely uh I think this was the the mid to late eighties. Oh yeah. When the, this came out. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um so so talk to me about how you because I'm a big I'm a big believer in leveraging the gigs that you have for other gigs. And mm-hmm. and not in like a weird, slimy, smarmy kind of way, but understanding that, hey, if I got myself in a in a pretty decent gig, I can use this to get other gigs. For sure. Mm-hmm. Did you, did the gigs that came out of working with NSYNC, did you, did you leverage that or was it just sort of by fate you landed, you landed other gigs? I gotta be honest. It's all fate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the whole, the whole journey. I'm not a very good uh, self networking kind of guy. Right. Uh, uh, I'm working on that. Um, and I'm sure I would be better had this path not, you know, taken the way that it did. Um, but like, for instance, um, well, the first thing, um, the uh, snap, you know, Turbo mm-hmm. B stuff with Johnny Wright, uh, that was, a, a, I'll go off in the story, but that's a weird connection that came through my wife, who's a drummer. Um, and so she got into the band and I got into the band. So it was all this connections that got me in. So then I'm in with Johnny and, and, and snap. And then that thing fizzles out. And Johnny called me when he had, well, technically when he had Backstreet Boys and I had to turn that down, but then he called me back when, when he had NSYNC. So then I'm out with NSYNC and then that's when uh, Neil is out front listening to me. So he comes to me and calls me for, I didn't network to him or do anything. And then after Pat, I came home and, and was mainly teaching for a good 10 or 11, 12 years. And out of the blue, I get an email from the keyboard player from the Moody's who happened to see my profile on, uh, I think, Drummer World or somewhere. And they were making a, you know, making a change and he, he just thought I'd be a good fit. So he just randomly reached out. And then of course, from that, I'm doing John Lodge's thing, which is directly connected in the fusion thing, which is Alan's project, which obviously came from our relationship with the Moody's. So mm-hmm. everything has, in its own weird little way, just sort of drifted forward without me pushing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I'm very lucky in that sense. I, d- because I have no networking skills. So I, you know, uh, I'm very lucky that, that Alan did reach out and, you know, and I'm very lucky that Neil came out and was listening to me during the show. Sure. For sure. You know? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I would argue though, that you say you're not a good, a good uh, networker and self promoter, but I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of like the word networking anyway. I think you just build relationships. And I think the person that you are, I think that you, you build good relationships because you play well, you're, you're polite, you're, you're fun to be around. You're, you know, all of these other things. That is true. I agree. You know, you know because like when Neil came out to, to, you know, if, if I was a jerk or something, I'm sure there'd be little comments flying around camp or something, you know, I mean, yeah. you get a reputation. So yeah. And then I'm sure Neil's sitting there listening. go, okay, he plays with the click. He plays in front of these people. He, he can deal with the energy. He can deal with the gig on this level, you know, and the same thing when Alan reached out for the Moody's, he knew my history that, you know, there wasn't going to be any issues. Like we talked about earlier, when mm-hmm. you step into a big gig, if you get someone green and they sound great at home and you get them out there in front of 20,000 people, boy, the bottom could fall out and you just don't know. 
know. Yeah. So there is, you're right, there is something to having that credential in your resume because you, you've proven you can do it. Yeah. And you can, it's also what I said earlier that when you do get these gigs, it's not just your playing. There's so many more dynamics. And because you're successful, you're not getting fired. You're you're sort of doing all these gigs, running the whole gig. You're not jumping around one of those guys. Yeah, they, they see that. They they have to. I'm, I'm sure they do. That has yeah. to be a, 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 a important, you know, part of the decision, I'm sure. Yeah. I, that reminded me when you were saying you get someone that's green, that sounds great at home and that gets out and, and they're horrible. <laughs> uh, Steve Gorman from the Black Crows was saying that they went out with, I think they went out with the Stones. And the, after like the third night, they were like, these guys have no idea what they're doing. Like, we got to get them off this tour. Like they're 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 hard and like the fans were bullied like it was it was and they went on to like finish the tour and everything but he was like we had no idea what we were doing he was like three weeks earlier we were playing in front of like six people at a bar and now we're playing in like a stadium in front of sixty thousand people and had no idea what we were doing (laughs) man y'all there's so much that comes at you all at once yeah (laughs) you know as a player it doesn't take much for me to take you you know out of your comfort zone you know, mm-hmm. it really doesn't. Um, yeah. It could be something musically. It could be something visually, something physical. Uh, you know, your seat's a little off. You know, the cable's wrapped around your back and tucked into your belt or something weird. All those yeah. things pull you in directions. Um, and that's where that's where muscle memory comes in. And that's yeah. probably why I'm so fanatic about practicing so much. A quick story. Um, uh, when I got the Moody gig, right, I literally had not played or toured for the better part of like 10 or 11 years, pretty much teaching very little, you know, playing and gigs. I didn't tell them that <laughs> at the time because I'm sure <laughs> that wouldn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a pro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's good. Uh, so anyway, so uh, the, the whole audition uh, was um, um, I just recorded some video, I think like three songs, some audio and video, and I sent it. And so I literally got the gig that way. But my point being, I got the gig. I had literally three months and they gave me all the material and I was like, oh, here we go. And I felt like a boxer coming out of retirement. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I got all the material, charted it out, put everything in show form and and digital performance started my, my, you know, my thing, my looping and my dissecting and practicing. I practiced so much during those three months. I put in six, eight hour days. I was breaking sticks because I I had to physically get myself back and I had to mentally get myself back. And there was only one way to do that. That was to to bust ass. I mean, I'm I'm like, I'm training for a, a, you know, an Olympic event. I told Mm -hmm. my wife, I said, my goal is to do the first show and walk off stage and sound like I've been with them for six months. I said, that's my goal. And I think I pulled it off. Uh, It went pretty well. Um, You always think you can do better. Yeah. But, um, no, that was three months of, of work, 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 just nonstop playing the show. Um, yeah. And yeah. it goes, and like you said, it goes back to, you know, that the preparation that goes into everything. How quickly can we get, we get thrown off? Like everyone sat down in the gig and like, they're not using your own drums. And you're like, man, these, they're not adjusted the right way. They don't, they don't feel right. The kick, the pedal doesn't, isn't as loose as mine or as tight as mine or the head seal different or this or that, or, mm-hmm. and and there's a there's a quote that I love, and I'm probably going to mess it up, but but uh, but it was in a, in a in a negotiation book that I read actually, and it says that you don't you don't rise to the occasion, you fail, you fall to your level of preparation. That oh, very good, yes. Yep. Which I thought was like 
It just yeah. totally blew up. I was like, that's totally true. And you're, yeah. I, I think that you're a shining example of that. That, that is you're so like, true. Yes, yes. And that's why I have no problem putting in the hours because I get the big picture. And I, it's almost like it's it's a necessity. You know, if I don't put the hours in, I'm really nervous. I'm like, I think I'm like flying on by the seat of my pants. I might not be too wise with this one. You know, yeah. I, I really like that comfort level. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just just the always the way I've approached it, and it's really served me well. It works very well for me personally. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so talk to me. So, I know that that um, you have multiple projects going on right now. What are some of the things that that you're excited about that you're working on? Oh wow, nice. Uh, yeah, this this end of this year really got crazy for me in a good way. Um, Let's see. So, uh, John, we, in 2019, uh, John Lodge from the Moody's, uh, went out, uh, with yes in Asia for a Royal affair tour and we recorded it. And so he just released that album. Um, well, I'm sorry, I believe it's coming out in a, in a week or two. Uh, gotcha. they, they released like a, a single video or something. So that's coming out, which is exciting. I can't wait to hear. Um, I was very fortunate to get involved with Robbie Steinhardt. You know, obviously before he passed, he just recently passed. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, you know, from Kansas, the original violinist. And he was doing a solo project and I got called in on that. And it's a very cool project. There's 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 tons of people guesting on this. Uh, Billy Cobham's on it. And oh, wow. I'm pretty sure Carmine's on it. Carmine a piece. Nice. Uh, Chick Corea. I mean, there's all kinds of great uh, players on it. And I got to do a song. And I believe that's going to be released uh very soon. I'm expecting a copy soon. So uh, that was very cool to be part of. Uh, but like I said, now we're rehearsing, uh, or excuse me, recording uh, for the next album for John Lodge. And then we're going to, I believe in January, do a live concert and film it. And then it'll be a live DVD uh, to support the album. Awesome. And uh, just recorded during the pandemic, um, Alan Hewitt and One Nation, which is a Prague fusion project. Um, and we recorded that and we just, um, that was released in September and we did a little fall tour and we got more stuff coming up next year as well. So um, I've been doing a lot of recording and I haven't done much recording. And so I've got a few albums coming out, which is pretty exciting um, that is, for me. You're, you're a busy <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, very lucky. And um, I just, I was talking with uh, the fine folk at Modern Drummer and they asked me to be involved with the uh, Modern Drummer Festival this year. Awesome. Um, which it's kind of funny because a couple of weeks ago, it was about, about two or three weeks ago, my wife and I were in Atlanta right after the, the little fall tour with uh, One Nation. We went to visit my daughter who was turning uh, 26. And so we were hanging out up there with her and I got a call one morning from John confirming those 13 tracks, but there's a time limit. So we got to do them really quickly. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. I, I got this. <laughs> About an hour later, Modern Drummer calls and asks me to be involved with them. It's a virtual thing with Modern Drummer. So I have to shoot, um, and I'm in the education segment, segment. So I have to shoot uh, and conceive a, a lesson and then a performance. I was like, okay, that's cool. He goes, and we need it by November 8th. Oh, geez. So, <laughs> so it's on. So I didn't panic. I just came, came home and started working right away. And luckily I got, uh, I got the deadline in with, with Modern Drummer, all that material's in. And now I'm just uh, a bit of the loads off. So I'm just working on John's project now uh, during the day. But it was That's crazy awesome. for a second. It was like 12 or 14 hour days. I literally took a nap in the middle of the day. I got so tired and got back <laughs> up and kept going. I can't remember the last time I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, uh, I, it, 
it is what it is. You know, I was excited to be part of this stuff. And, and um, I told my wife, like when I got the Moody gig, I said, failure is not an option in my mind. It's just, there's no way. So yeah. it, it doesn't matter how much practice, you know, how tired, you know, if I've mm-hmm. got the time, well, I'll make the time, but especially if I've got the time, uh, I'll definitely put it in. Yeah. And, are you, So are you doing a lot of the, are you doing a lot of the recording remotely? All of it. Really? Yes. The whole One Nation album, all of John's stuff. Uh, although with Robbie's stuff, I did go into the studio here in Orlando, which is which was interesting because I hadn't been in a studio for years. All the stuff I did was at my house. Right. Um, and it was it was a very cool session because um, Michael Franklin, the, the producer who brought me in, he said, before I went in, he said, do three passes. He goes, do the first pass and we want you just to cop because they sent us, uh, you know, the, the rough demos with some drum machine ideas in there. Mm-hmm. He goes, cop that. And he goes, and then the second time, we do a run through and then you put like some of your Billy stuff in there. And they said, the third time, go wait shit. He goes, just play a bunch of stuff because I like crazy stuff and then I'll edit it. And I said, okay, I never really approached anything quite like that. So we did. And he sent me a, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, the, the mix and um, came out pretty cool. You yeah. know, it's interesting because it's completely the opposite. What I did for all these other songs where I was completely in control, like I said, and I would work on stuff and, you know, uh, put it away for a few hours or a day and come back and listen and set what I want to do. And then I would send it off, you know, for Alan to listen to and get his approval. Well, this was just me going and playing a bunch of stuff and walk away and all of that, you know, that stuff was in his world. So I didn't have to think about that. Um, so I just went in and played and walked away. But I think the track came out great um, the way he he ended up using like the second take where I just played more like me. And then he spliced in a couple of the crazy fills at certain times that he wanted, which is kind of interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Do you, do you like recording remotely versus being in the studio? I do. Yeah. You, you you miss that energy, you know, that you get, that nervous energy or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there's something magical to that, don't get me wrong, but there's something so cool about your drums always set up, always tuned up. All you got to do when you have the time or you're having a good day is go out, turn the gear on and play. That's just priceless. Um, that, I love that world. I'm really starting to enjoy it more now that I'm doing it yeah. know, a lot. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really digging it because I'm an early person. So I'll, I'll get, I'm fresher in the morning and I just, I've become this morning guy. Mm-hmm. So I'll do all of my recording uh, and practicing in the first part of the day. I rarely uh, practice um, like at this time of day, I'm usually done. Although when we're done, I, I'm going to track a little more for John's stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, typically uh, mornings for me, or magical. And work what do you mean? Well. You're a musician. You're not allowed to be a morning guy. I know, but <laughs> I, I don't do local gigs. And if I do, they kill me. Cause I'm usually in bed by, I don't know, 10 or 11. Man, I'm the, I'm the same way. Are you? Yeah. 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 I'm the same way. So yeah. like, and I coincidentally, or, or the, my life has completely changed. I grew up in the restaurant business. So I, I bartended at my parents' restaurant and sometimes oh. I go to bed at, you know, three, four, five o'clock in the morning and then playing a ton of, of bar gigs for a while. And, same thing. You go to bed at yeah. three, four o'clock in the morning. Now, like ten fifteen, I'm like, what? It's time to go to bed. <laughs> so, which world do you like better? Uh, what do you mean, the early world or the just, mo- yeah, just schedule wise? What? what or I, I'd much prefer? rather be up early. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I can't stand being up late. 
Yeah. You know? Um, I, you know what? I can stay up late. I don't, you know, at if it's 11 o'clock, I'm not like, all right, I have to go to bed. If we're out or something, I can, I can stay up probably with the best of them. Uh, but, but I love, I, I like the early morning. Yeah. So I, I find myself wanting to go to bed because of the energy and the work I get done, you know, yeah. first thing in the morning. That's yeah. one thing I've, I really, uh, noticed when I switched my schedule around. Cause I was the same way, you know, when I started playing when I was, you know, 18, all clubs, you know, all mm-hmm. my life, you know, you're right. Getting, getting to bed two, three, four in the morning, used to, you know, sleep till, you know, noon every day. Yeah. And what changed it for me was my daughter, when she entered the public school system, then all of a sudden mornings meant something and Monday through Friday meant something in my schedule, which it never did my whole life. And I was the one that ended up getting up and getting her off to school. And then after doing that for a bit, I was like, this is really working. I feel better. I'm much more focused. I'm, uh, I play better. I get more done. And I just fall in love with it. Yeah, so, me too. Yeah. A lot of times I'll go for a bike ride in the morning and it's nice to see sort of the world coming alive, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important too that to talk about just sleep in general for musicians because we do run into this cycle of going to bed at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And sometimes you have to get up in the morning to go to a nine to five job. So you're getting two, three, four hours of sleep. And before I used to, if I set my alarm for the morning, if I went to bed late, then I would just say, okay, I would just sacrifice sleep. But now if I get to bed too late, I'll actually push my alarm out because sleep is so, so important uh, yes. that I think it gets, I think we, I, I think we celebrate like burning the midnight oil and, and not getting any sleep, but really, really we should be talking about how much sleep we're getting and making sure that we're getting adequate sleep because it affects you. Like you said, it affects, you know, how, how you perform and how much oh, stuff yeah. you get done during the day and how, how clear you are. And, and, and I, I think that there's all positive that comes out of getting an extra couple hours of sleep versus like getting up on four hours of sleep and like trying to go out there and, and oh, absolutely. get your stuff done. I don't know if you're like me, but the older I get, the, the less I can do that. You know, I can't yeah. burn the midnight oil like when I was in my 20s, you know. Yeah. It's just like I'm just a, in a different spot. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's I agree. Just taking care of yourself and resting, you know, especially the, the older you get. It's crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Diet, exercise, all that stuff's huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it comes, I, and I know it when I'm in, when I'm in better, cause I'm sort of like a, I fluctuate weight up and down. So, uh, but I know that when I'm in better shape, I feel so much better behind the kit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, have just, more stamina and, and just, I, I, I feel better. I feel less winded. I feel, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff is, is, uh, is good to keep in mind. So it is. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a big part. I mean, it drums is. are physical, you know? Yeah. Yeah, much more physical than than probably any other instrument. Uh, yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Yeah, so, unless you have, you know, somebody <laughs> I don't know, maybe a, a very uh, animated tuba player or something. Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, where can uh, where can people go to keep an eye on, on what you have going on? Is, is should they go to your website or? And I know I know you're writing for Modern Drummer, and where else can they follow along? Um, I have Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, and a YouTube channel is the easiest way to find me on social media. Okay. Yeah. I'll link up to that, uh, in the show notes as well. So everyone, okay. yeah. everyone can Thanks. find that. Yeah, just, you know, at Billy Ashbaugh and all those, all those places. I, d- I do not have a website. 
I probably should. You don't? But, um, I do not, no. Well, I was saying, where did I, I was thinking, where did I reach out to you? And I think I saw, I think I saw you on LinkedIn and I got your email address on LinkedIn. That's where I think I found you. Might have, yeah. 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 Well, but, uh, it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody says you should have a website. But, uh, eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has their, their <laughs> own advice for what you should do. So, yeah. uh, well, Billy, I appreciate you again, working through, uh, all these schedule changes and getting all this lined up and everything and, and sharing all this. Now there's some, some great information in here, uh, especially about the, just the preparation and, and, and treating this like a profession and not like a hobby. And mm -hmm. honestly, even if you're a hobbyist, I feel like you should treat it like a profession. So I appreciate well, yeah. your, your yeah. perspective on, on all these things. And there's, like I said, there's a ton of knowledge in here. So thank awesome. you for your time. Oh, my um, pleasure. And yeah. for sharing, for sharing all this information. Oh, thank you so much. You know, and again, <laughs> for your patience, because I believe I started this whole tag thing of us not getting together and then it just snowballed. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't point fingers here. We don't point fingers here at Drummer's right Resource, on. so don't worry I about that. that. <laughs> I'll take that. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you so much. What, of course. What a, what a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. There you have it, Mr. Billy Ashball, and you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 638 to get the show notes. Also, if you haven't already, please do me a favor, leave a rating, leave a review on iTunes. It takes a minute and it helps other people know that this is a podcast that they should be listening to. So like I said, just go to Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do and uh, it'll take about a minute. Other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.